0: Thank you for listening to this message from South Ridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply his word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on SouthRidgeCC.org. So let's get started.
1: Well, if you've been with us throughout the series, you have seen this chart a couple of times, but I wanted to drag it out one last time as we complete the series. Because so often, if you're anything like me, you kind of get lost. And the storyline of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And so a number, number, number of you, this has helped you kind of like orient yourself to the big picture. Periodically, we kind of look at the big picture from beginning to end. Uh, so these things are key for us. But for the Old Testament, uh, this timeline is especially helpful. We've been in a series about Elijah. Elijah lived about 850 years before the birth of Jesus. Another person you're going to hear mentioned this morning, as the scripture is read in a few minutes, is the person of Moses. Moses fits in here about 1,450 years before the birth of Jesus. So, all the way back here, you've got Abraham. Abraham lived before Jesus roughly as long as we live after Jesus. So, that gives you some idea of perspective of where Abraham is. You've got Moses, you got your kings. Saul, David, and Solomon. The kings divide or Israel divides. Then Elijah comes as a prophet. You have a bunch of things happening. Israel and Judah split up. There's an exile. There's return. We won't go through all the details of that. Jesus comes. uh, It splits apart B.C. and A.D. This morning, we're going to be talking about the transfiguration, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That happens just before the cross cross happens roughly around 30 A.D., and so the Mount of Transfiguration happens just before the cross. Interesting thing. uh, Dennis is going to invite Dennis up while I'm saying this. Uh, A couple of things. Um, Christmas is obviously a huge holiday for us here in the U.S., uh, around the world as well. Uh, Everybody knows about Christmas. Uh, But interestingly enough, of the four gospels, Only Matthew and Luke actually give us an account of Jesus' birth. Uh, Mark and John certainly allude to it when they talk about the beginning, but it's only Matthew and Luke who actually give us details about the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. The transfiguration is actually mentioned in three Gospels rather than just two. And yet the transfiguration, even though the gospel writers actually highlight it more than Jesus' birth, uh, I can hardly remember ever, ever really hearing much of a message on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's something we often don't connect with, we don't study, we don't look at, and yet it's actually mentioned more. Now, just by way of perspective a little bit, uh, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel this morning as Dennis reads about the Mount of Transfiguration. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, are sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels. Maybe you've heard that term. Synoptic simply meaning this. You can hear the word syn, S-Y-N, in there. You can think of synthesis. You can think of synonyms, words that sound alike. And then synoptic's Optics, something that you see. And so the reason the first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels is it be, because they all see Jesus somewhat similarly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share lots of content, and so they have this similar perspective. They share similar things. They see things commonly, and so there are three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. The gospel of John, uh, John was probably the last gospel written, and so rather than being redundant, John probably filled in some things and perspectives that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out. So John is also one of the Gospels, but it's not synoptic. John has content that's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We find the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Again, Elijah and Moses show up there. Listen for that as Dennis reads uh, from Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 13.
0: After six days. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, And John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him and have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist.
1: We won't get into details about that, but just in case you're wondering, uh, John the Baptist actually preceded the coming of Jesus. Uh, John prepared people to receive Jesus, and according to the scriptures, uh, John the Baptist was said to have come sort of with the same spirit of Elijah. And so you might say, like, Elijah rattled some cages when he showed up on the scene, uh, was a courageous spokesperson for God. Uh, same thing with John the Baptist. So that's what it's talking there about John the Baptist or Elijah preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, our scriptures tell us, Jesus himself said that John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. We're going to look at two things this morning to kind of like wrap this series up and two kind of big picture ideas that I think will, will be helpful to us. One of the things we often are challenged with as followers of Jesus is simply this. Sometimes, my guess is if you're anything like me, we gather together, we sing songs about God being great and glorious. We, see song, we sing songs about his power and might. We read scripture that talks about how he's at work. We read scripture that tells us that he's with us. And yet sometimes, if you're anything like me, sometimes the presence and the glorious goodness of God seems somewhat distant, seems somewhat disconnected. And maybe that's because of things that happen in our world, the hardship events, the trauma of events, the evil, the wickedness that surrounds us. And maybe it's something that's connected to our own lives. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a split up of family relationship, and you pray and you pray, and God just somehow seems distant. And so we often wrestle with that. But then also something else that we wrestle with is this. How do my own shortcomings, how do my own failures, how do my own regrets actually connect to this God who's great and grand and glorious? Number one, is God really at work? Is God really as present as we say that he is? Is his glory, is his strength, is his power, is his might, does it really permeate our world and all that happens as much as we sing about and pray about that it does. then secondly, what about our shortcomings? What about our failures? What about our regrets? How can they possibly be part of the larger story of what God is doing? How does that fit in to the glorious story of who God is? We're going to be looking at two ideas that cover both of those. Number one, We're going to talk about a thin veil, a thin veil. Here's where we want to go with this. Let me read again Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 and 2. It says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So Jesus just takes three of his disciples up to the mountain, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. We're not quite sure what mountain it is. Could be Mount Hermon. That's one of the suggestions. There he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured simply means changed. He was particularly changed in appearance. Uh, The word there in the Greek is the idea of metamorphosis. He was changed before them. What did that look like? Well, Matthew goes on and he tells us, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. What we know from scripture that when Jesus came to earth, As a human being, while he was God in flesh, he actually left his glory behind, a significant amount of his glory behind, so that the human beings could handle his presence, the glory of God in the person of Jesus, even though Jesus was fully God, the glory of God was somewhat shrouded and shielded. But in Mount of Transfiguration, that veil was lifted and it says, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. As we read scripture, what we find is this. Yes, there is a veil between ourselves and what we can see of the glory of God. There is a veil that we can't fully apprehend. We can't fully comprehend. We can't fully grasp we can't fully see the wondrous glory of God. There's a veil there, but the message of Scripture is this. That veil is thin. It's not thick. Let me just walk you through some things throughout Scripture. Remember when Jacob is fleeing his brother Esau. Jacob lays down for the night, and he has a vision, and there's a stairway leading from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending. Heaven and earth become connected. The veil is broken. Moses stands before a burning bush on the backside of a desert, and a voice comes out. Moses is told God's name, and the veil, the thin veil, is broken, and Moses comes in contact with a bit more of the glory of God. Last Sunday, Dan talked about Elijah being taken off into the presence of God. Here's what it says about that happening in 2 Kings chapter two. As they were walking along and talking together, listen to this, it's mind-blowing. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated two of them, meaning Elisha and Elijah. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. There's There's horses of chariots and fire. The veil is broken the glory of God is seen. heaven meets earth. One of my favorite things, and just kind of like blows my mind, is this account later on in the life of Elisha. Uh, the king of Aram wants to kind of take over the king of Israel, wants to defeat him, wants to take him away. And so the kingdom of Aram is trying to track down the king of Israel, but he can't understand why he can't do it. Behind the scenes, we know that God is revealing to Elisha where the, where, uh, where the king of Aram is so that he can avoid the king of Aram. We know that. The king of Aram doesn't. And so the king of Aram becomes frustrated because every time he tries to capture this king of Israel, every time he goes to a town where he thinks the king of Israel should be, the king of Israel is gone because the king of Israel seems to have already known that the king of Aram is coming. And so in a moment of frustration, the king of Aaron, Aaron thinks that probably some of his servants are somehow communicating to the king of Israel how he's going to track them down. So he gathers them together and says, like, hey, which, which one of you guys is a spy? Which one of you guys is spilling the beans as to where I am and how I'm going to track down the king of Israel? Here's what it says in 2 Kings 6.12. They say, none of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. I love that. He says, man, this this guy named Elisha is telling the king of Israel where you're going to be and it's as, as if this person named Elisha is camped out in your bedroom listening to your most private conversations. The veil is broken. We see the presence of God. But later on, Finally, the king of Aram wants to capture Elisha himself, and so he goes to Dothan, and Elisha and his servant wake up in the morning, and they're in Dothan, and around they see the forces of King Aram gathered. Elisha's servant freaks out because it's obviously doomsday for them. And so here's what we find in 2 Kings 6.17, and Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The veil is broken. Here's what I want you to know, friends. Yes, God is filled with glory. God's presence is over the earth. God is present with us. There is a veil that we can't fully see what's happening, but that veil is thin, it's not thick. God's presence is here. We can't always see it. We can't fully grasp it. But the veil is thin. It's not thick. Some of you this morning, and as we gather here, as you gathered online, sometimes the veil feels really thick. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a job blows up. Maybe family relationships blow up and became scattered. Maybe there's evil or trauma in your life or the loved ones that you know. I don't know what it is, but but you pray, and it feels like the veil between heaven and earth is not a thin veil, but instead, it feels like a steel curtain. And you know what I'm talking about. When you pray and you pour out your heart to God, you tell him your burdens about the medical diagnosis, the family relationships, the emotional wounds, the hard things you've dealt with. And you feel like rather than being a thin veil, it feels like a steel curtain. But I want you to know, it's not a steel curtain. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil is lifted. The glory of God is seen for just a moment. And even though you can't see it, the veil is thin and God is present remember when we went back during the pandemic and we looked at Psalm chapter 23, and it was one of the first times this really jumped out at me, and I just love it when you're, you know, gone through something and, you know, you've known it for a lot of years and something suddenly kind of jumps out at you that you've never seen before. And I remember this was it for me in Psalm chapter 23. In Psalm 23, David is writing, King David, and he says, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake, or an older translation, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. That's what David says. He says, God, you're my good shepherd. You lead me in the right paths. You lead me in the paths of righteousness. Guess what follows that in Psalm 23? I mean, you think if this God, this good shepherd leads David in the right paths, It's going to go pretty well for David. Instead, here's what it says. Very next door. Very next verse. Very next verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. remember that blowing my mind. One phrase, David says, God, you lead me in the right paths. You're my good shepherd. In the very next phrase, David says, sometime I'm in the darkest valley and I have no idea what's going on. Friends, if that feels like that's your experience, you're not unnormal. You're profoundly Normal. In fact, here's what David says. David acknowledges that even in the darkest valley, the veil is still thin. Here's what he says. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even though I'm in a dark valley, I'm gonna have faith and belief that the veil is thin, that you are still with me. We sang songs this morning. Even when I can't see it, you're with me. Even when I can't feel it, with you're with me. You are constantly working. Friends, listen, it's not a steel curtain between you and God. It's a thin veil. And I get it, it is a veil. I don't see the work of God much more often than what I like. But God tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. And here's what I can tell you. Believing that it's a thin veil is not intuitive. In fact, it's counterintuitive. If you try to assess the presence of God in your own life, my guess is many times it will be counterintuitive. It will not be the natural explanation. It will not be what you naturally believe to say that the veil is thin, to say that the presence of God is right there. It's just that you can't see it. But man... The veil is thin, it's not thick. By the way, if you look at the greater context of this in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, this is the chapter immediately before, he says to them, I'm gonna go to the cross. And Peter says, there's no way that can be part of the story. There's no way that that can meaningfully fit in to the story of who you are. In fact, Peter says, I refuse to allow you to go to the cross. Well, eventually, Jesus would go to the cross, and it would seem like a steel curtain, but it was still the work of God. In fact, Jesus actually alluded to the cross as the moment of his greatest glory. Why? Because the veil is thin. Even in the horror of the cross, even when it seemed like that can't possibly belong to the plan of God, the veil was thin. God was at work, even though, from Peter's perspective, he couldn't let that happen because it would demonstratively prove that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. So, friends, I simply want to ask you are you walking by faith? The veil is thin. I realize there's darkness. I realize some of you may be in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, but your affirmation needs to be that of David. I will fear no evil because you are with me. The veil is thin. I may not be able to see it. I may not be able to perceive your glorious presence, but you are with me. The veil is thin, but secondly, the grace is thick. There's a thin veil and a thick grace. Now, unfortunately, we often kind of turn those around. We kind of think that the veil is thick and that grace is thin, but actually it's the opposite. The veil is thin and the grace is thick. Again, Matthew chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light." Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah show up. Both of these guys, Moses back here and Elijah here show up. Uh, we won't get in, take a lot of time as to why those two. Most likely, it's because both of those characters sort of represented together the whole redemptive work of God in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, as Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he says. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. Uh, Jewish people divided the Old Testament up into a number of ways, but the two largest categories were law and prophets. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, as Jesus is resurrected, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples. Here's what it says. Jesus then explained everything written about himself in the scriptures beginning with the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, the law and the prophets. And so most likely Moses is there as a representative of the law. It was through Moses that God gave the law to the people of Israel. Elijah is there because Elijah is representative of the prophets. The prophets had spoken about the need for faithfulness to God and calling people back to himself. And so Jesus is there. With basically this whole timeline represented in the persons of Moses and Elijah. Elijah. But here's the deal: what I love is simply this. After it all, Jesus or it says this: while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. In other words, yes, Moses and Elijah are important, but listen to Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of facets of the lives of Moses and Elijah. Moses, his life began as a rescue child. He was supposed to be doomed to death, but his life was rescued in a little tiny basket in the Nile River. He took matters into his own hands in his early years and killed an Egyptian out of anger and frustration. He took care of sheep on the backside of the desert for 40 years, precisely because he needed to isolate himself because he killed the Egyptian. And so for 40 years, Moses lives basically what he would think of as a wasted life on the backside of a desert. He felt inadequate and incompetent for what God had called him to do. God said, hey, Moses, I've got a job for you. And Moses was like, you've got the wrong guy. I don't speak well. I'm not your guy. I'm inadequate. I'm incompetent. The people of Israel eventually wanted to kill Moses. Moses, we thought that you were going to deliver us. We wanted to kill him. He was discouraged and despondent over the role that God gave to him. Sometimes in frustration, he would say to God, God, why did you call me to lead these people? So he had moments of tremendous discouragement, tremendous despondence. One time out of maximum frustration, when God told him to speak to a rock Moses just took his rod and he smacked that thing just out of anger and frustration, just kind of like frustrated with the people that God led him, he asked him to lead. By the way, he never made it to the promised land. He died on the mountain he was able to see over the promise. He never actually made it. That's Moses' life. Here's Elijah. Elijah felt isolated and alone. He was camped out by the Brook Kirith Ravine. For a while, he was fed by a widow lady and her son. He was overcome by discouragement and disappointment. He felt fearful. He felt abandoned. He felt that his life was a waste. In fact, one time in the wilderness under a broom tree, a juniper tree, he said, God, I've had it. Just let me die. What you've called me to as a failure. You're not working like I thought that you would. Just let me die. Let me check out. He wanted to escape. He wanted to isolate. Verse 6 of Matthew chapter 17. Listen to this. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Listen to this next phrase. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus So here's the deal. You got Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. Were they used by God? Absolutely, in many ways. But what I love most is this, friends. Every one of their greatest successes, every one of their greatest triumphs, every one of their greatest fears, their failures, their defeats, every one of them was enshrouded in the glory of Jesus. In fact, they actually went away, and only Jesus was left. Here's what I can tell you. The veil is thin, and grace is thick. Grace is thick. I don't know what it's going to be like when you meet God, maybe there's gonna be some amazing successes. Maybe there's gonna be some amazing triumphs. Maybe there's gonna be some amazing things that you've done for God. But that's gonna be combined with probably some pretty serious regrets. It's gonna be combined with some pretty serious defeats. It's gonna be combined maybe with some pretty serious Emotional wounds, some despondency, some discouragement, some feeling utterly defeated. Many moments that you wish you could have back. And listen, friends, God's grace and his glory is going to cover it all. The greatest defeats, the greatest victories are somehow all a part of the glorious presence of Jesus on the mountain. And they go away, and Jesus is left standing. I'm going to ask our team to come out while I just read some of these phrases. Moses' victory in leading the people through the Red Sea is ultimately about Jesus' victory in leading us out of sin's bondage. Moses' inadequacy in God's call for him to lead the people of Israel is ultimately about Jesus' adequacy and his record being given to us. Moses and the people of Israel placing blood on the doorsteps of their homes so that judgment passes over them is ultimately about Jesus' blood being given for us and making payment for our sin and our failures. Moses' failure as he strikes the rock in anger and frustration is ultimately about Jesus' faithfulness as he says, Father, forgive them. Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel is ultimately about Jesus' victory over all of his enemies. Elijah's victory in raising the widow's son from the dead is ultimately about Jesus conquering death and raising from the dead and one day raising us from the dead as well. Elijah's despondency. In Elijah's despondency, he asks God to just let him die. But Jesus is faithful, and he intentionally goes to the cross to give his life for us. Listen, friends. We often think that the veil is thick and grace is thin. The Mount of transfiguration Tells us the exact opposite. The veil is thin, and grace is thick. Second Corinthians 3 17 through 18 uses the same word as transfiguration metamorphosis. Here's what it says now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Just read that one more time. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, are being transfigured, you might say, are being metamorphized, being changed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, from day one, when we opened a series, we said, it's not about Elijah. It's about Yahweh, the personal God. It's not about Elijah. It's about Jesus who's on the mountain with Elijah. And get what, friends? It's not about you either. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? It's about Christ. And so we're going to stand to just close out the series. You can stand with me. We're going to sing the song that reminds us that God is faithful. That any faithfulness we have Any faithfulness that we give, any obedience that we have is only a response to the faithfulness and obedience of Christ because it's all about him. The veil is thin and grace is thick. Don't dare believe that the veil is thick and grace is thin. Let's sing this together.
2: You're the God of covenant, faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And at my heart, when you speak a word, it will come. Too pass great is your faith. nothing you can't do you're faithful and true though the storms may come and the winds may blow i'll remain steady.
1: faithfulness is great to us that yes we are veiled from seeing the full glory of Yahweh God of glory but thank you that the veil is thin thank you that you are present with us that your Holy Spirit even indwells us And God, thank you most of all that your grace is thick. We thank you for guys like Elijah and Moses. But we're thankful that your grace covers them and it covers us. So we're thankful that you are with us and that your grace flows like a mighty river. That's all true through the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to have you, pray with you. God bless. Have a great day. Stay cool this afternoon. Have a safe trip home. God bless.